Hi, I'm Mark Anielski. I'm your host of the Economics of Wellbeing podcast. My next special guest is Galvin Lee, joining me from Singapore. Galvin is a Singaporean millennial who grew up in the East meets West cosmopolitan, tiny, and multicultural island city-state of contradictions. Professionally, he represents 34 telecom companies in Asia-Pacific as a corporate innovator who is engaged in fields such as 5G, data analytics, and immersive technologies. He's also the co-founder of Sound of Art, an Asian art platform that promotes faith-inspired art and visual culture. This is particularly important during this COVID pandemic. He is a keen observer of faith and its role in society, having co-authored a book with his father called Unfolding His Story, a 2015 book that documents the charismatic Christian revival in Singapore of the 1970s and 80s and its impact on the nation. As we move deeper into the 21st century, he believes, Singapore again has a critical role to play as a global broker and incubator for new and radical models of doing business with love, grace, and honor. Today, Galvin and I talk about these words, love, grace, and honor, honor in business, the word love in business. And I reminisce my first meeting with his father, Georgie Lee, being the sponsor of Philip In, who is the CEO of the largest private real estate company in Singapore, the Far East Organization. Philip's core principle for the company is love. This shocked me and pleased me. Philip defined the word love as the concern for the well-being of the other. What a wonderful thing to consider if love was a central organizing feature of our governments, of our countries, of our businesses. Concern for the well-being of the other is a compelling idea. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Galvin Lee, a young Singaporean who represents, I think, a glimmer of hope for the future, a future based on well-being, of love, of grace, and of honor. Thanks for listening. I'm very pleased to have my next guest, Galvin Lee, joining me from Singapore. It's late in the evening in Edmonton and early morning uh, in Singapore. Galvin and I met a couple of years ago when I was invited to Singapore. I met his father, who a uh, very influential businessman, and Galvin, a young entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed this conversation about the future of Singapore. So welcome, uh, Galvin Lee, to um, this little podcast show. It's uh, what time is it in Singapore right now? It's well, it's uh, 10.30 in the morning. On a Saturday, and it's 8.35 in Edmonton, Alberta. So, yeah, this, the, it's nice and sunny over here. And um, basically around the year, it's either sunny or it's raining heavily. <laughs> yeah. But the temperature remains the same. It's very tropical. Always 28 to 32 degrees Celsius. Yeah, unlike Alberta, where it can be remain the same about minus fifteen degrees Celsius uh, for you know four or five months. So, <clears throat> but Galvin, you and I met um, actually through your father. The my first trip to Singapore was uh, I think three years ago. Four, it's hard to lose track of time. But uh, you know when I met you um, and your parents, I was I was really impressed with this uh, element of. Christian faith in Singapore and 
and your dad having worked in, in you know in the stock markets i think as a broker and that whole world and the connection interesting connection with edward baustad who hmm. came to singapore and one of the first merchant bankers in the world in what 1840 or something he came and so the interesting connections your dad and i had uh on on the financial kind of world uh and i came there as a guest to philip in who's you know i would say he's uh if the crazy rich asian movie is about philip it, it got it wrong in his family but it's a funny movie and so people have a kind of glimpse of singapore so and you're a young entrepreneur um you're quite a gifted young person and I'd just like to get a sense from you about what you're seeing um in the world and in, in in the world in singapore as a as a young business person entrepreneur a social social venture kind of person and mm-hmm. how that, how your faith has kind of informed your your journey and uh, given you strength and hope and and what you're seeing going forward for Singapore uh, as a young as a young person. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. Um, I mean, just as uh, Singapore is a very far distance away from you geographically, I think. Um, a lot of people in the world um, don't really know or understand Singapore. Uh, I believe that uh, key decision makers um, globally, they do. I mean, Singapore is well known in that sense, but I don't think the average person maybe in the West um, has much visibility of what Singapore represents. Hmm. Um, well, I grew up in an English speaking household um, in Singapore, which has a British colonial heritage. Uh, In Singapore, I would say that uh, a significant number of households actually speak English at home, although uh, there are also others who speak other of our, what we call mother tongue, like um, Chinese, different Chinese dialects or Mandarin. Of Mandarin. As well as as Tamil. Right. Um, So basically it's uh, East meets West kind of place. Uh, And for a long time, we've been what's called Antropod a place where uh, trade happens, where uh, traders come to buy and sell goods, which are then transported around the world, uh, thanks to uh, a good and deep and safe harbor that we have. Uh, So we have been a maritime port for a long time, and we still are Mm. a major global port city. Uh, Of course, nowadays in the times of technology and the digital age, uh, we have also become a port of different kind, uh, a port for ideas, a port for um, global hubs of technology MNCs to base themselves in, as Mm. well as what I would say a gateway, not only to Asia, but to be a bit more precise nowadays, a gateway to Southeast Asia. Uh, Southeast Asia is uh, seen as one of the last uh, frontier areas in the world in terms of business opportunity. Uh, 650 million population, so that's uh, very sizable. Very young population as well, 26% of the population in this region is below 14 years of age. Uh, that's wow. not quite the same for Singapore. I mean, Singapore is a bit of an anomaly. Uh, but if you take the region together, uh, that's 26% compared to 19% in the US and 18% in China. What about Japan? Um, Japan's even got an older population, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And um, in terms of being uh, adept with technology and what you call digital natives, I was just looking through some statistics. Um, For example, Filipinos uh, spend 10 hours online every day. That is the highest in the world. 
Right? Wow. So the, the region has a very young, very social, and when I say social, I mean social media. Mm. Uh, there's no native kind of population, just on the brink of, uh, I would say, exponential growth. And this is seen also in the tech, kind of technology funding flowing into the region, um, both from uh, VCs as well as from established tech companies. Um, you see a lot of companies like, um, uh, say, Zoom recently, Twitter, PayPal, and then from the Chinese world, like Tencent, Alibaba, ByteDance, which owns TikTok, um, recently established or grow their offices here in Singapore. Um, I mean, that's not new. I mean, we've already uh, had a lot of uh, MNCs as well as tech MNCs based themselves here for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, going back to your question, uh, I would just start off this introduction as saying that Singapore is quite a peculiar place, but uh, in that peculiarity, actually, because it is the convergence of East and West, it is a convergence of a developed economy in a very developing region. It is a convergence of a place with a lot of capital in Singapore uh, mm. to a region that is, uh, I wouldn't say it's poor, but uh, it's, <laughs> coming, it's, coming from a, it's coming from a place where over the last 50 years, uh, the region had a lot of, uh, some places had war, civil wars, various kind of strife, um, multi-religious or multi-ethnic conflict, um, dictatorships and so on. But, but a lot of that you know, is, is clearing up and that's the opportunity that we see. And I think um, not just to talk about Singapore just from a you know, Western perspective looking in, but from a Singaporean young person's perspective looking out, I would say that pe young people in Singapore also need to, to change their perspective. Um, for a very long time, um, we looked at the West as, uh, I mean, if I was to use the term like kind of Mecca. Right, right, right yes. Um, the very best uh, students in Singapore uh, are often given government scholarships. That's how the government retains talent and uh, kind of, uh, well, convinces young people who do know any better to take <laughs> up a scholarship and then they get bonded to the government and many of them end up working as uh, career government servants. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I was saying that a lot of them take up the scholarship and then they get sent to Harvard, they get sent to Cambridge, Oxford, um, MIT, Stanford, yeah. uh, and so on. And, and that's like, you know, you've made it as a, <laughs> a student. Right. Or even students who study locally in Singapore, they see going on exchange to uh, London, to um, San Francisco, to New York, or these kind of cities as places that are aspirational. So when I say that we have to change our perspective, I mean that um, they should be thinking of the places that are growing, right? Right at our doorstep, mm, mm -hmm. where the opportunity is. Uh, I mean, we are a country which is, um, which operates in English um, and many people are English speaking in, uh, in terms of their native language um, but the strange thing is a lot of Singaporeans uh, do not actually know Malay uh, Malay is spoken by in uh, Malay is spoken in Malaysia and Malaysia. the variant of it is spoken in Indonesia very close right or Thai or any of those other languages so uh, I think that's also something that young people in Singapore need to start to reorientate their perspective. Very interesting. Hmm. So from a, um, 
there's so many things to talk about. I, I'm curious about, I mean, the, the long arm and influence of Lee Kuan Yew, who's legendary's, uh, legendary leadership, right? Yes. Gave you, uh, gave the country a sense of, we were talking about this actually this week with my friends about the importance of, of, of structure, of, uh, of order, right? Of knowing that there is a leader that lived up to some, espoused some virtues and it's, uh, maybe goes to some of our, our later conversation about Christian virtue. Um, and I think that was, was fascinating to see the influence of this man and on, on the success of Singapore by standard measures of economic success. Um, but, you know, now, and now he's, I don't know how many years he's been gone. How, how is that? Six, five, years. six years. How is that? Uh, how is his influence still shaping your generation, for example? And how are you yourselves navigating, um, you know, that path of virtue? Thomas Jefferson said once, without virtue, happiness cannot be. And one of my reflections is I think the world is, has lost a sense of virtue. Mm. As, as, as if everything is relative, everything is, you know, anything goes. Uh, mm. And which now we see, we see even the, which countries are doing better with co under the, the COVID pandemic. Mm. Um, and the West might say, well, it might be easier for countries like China where you can, you know, impose by the rule of law isolation. Or in Singapore, you arrive at the airport and probably have a bracelet on your, or your ankle so they can track you. And mm. in the West, you'd say, well, that, that would be a surrender of, of uh, rights and freedoms. But yet there's a sense, at least my time in China, there's a sense that, you know, without that kind of sense of shared responsibility, that, that the country wouldn't operate um, as smoothly as it has. Yeah. What are your thoughts about as you move forward from the shadow of Lee Kuan Yew's uh, yeah. influence. Well, um, that shadow is definitely still around. Uh, yeah. I mean, just before this podcast, of course, I was talking to you about you know, what are some topics we could discuss. And you told me we could do it freestyle. And I mean, <laughs> I suppose uh, what you referred to structure uh, that does rub off a little bit on me, although I, I, I do think I'm also a little atypical. Um, <laughs> And uh, I mean, just a little joke, right? Uh, just now we were talking about the weather. And um, <laughs> actually, Lee Kuan Yew himself said that the best invention ever was the air conditioning. Because in, <laughs> Singapore, in Singapore, it's hot. I mean, I, I know that you, you like the heat coming from where you are, but uh, it's, it's hot and very humid. And so uh, most of the time we work in, in air conditioning. And uh, to, to make it a little bit more serious, uh, there was an uh, academic and uh, a journalist uh, who, who wrote a book called The Air Conditioned Nation. Before you could check it out, uh, he, he's a little critical of the government. And mm -hmm. uh, in it, you can read some essays about how he, he talks about Singapore as a very, uh, when, when he says air conditioned, very controlled. Controlled, not necessarily repressive, but controlled in terms of everything is very man-made. Mm -hmm. uh, it is true, we have very few natural resources. Right. Uh, our land is very small, not like Canada. And so... It's a, it's a country that is very much manufactured and you could say artificial, not that, there's, not that that's necessarily bad, 
But um, unlike Canada, we don't necessarily have that sense of connection to nature, to ecology. Mm. We are used to shopping malls. We are used to uh, land being reclaimed from the sea. In fact, I think since uh, since the time we were independent, I think we have actually grown at least around a quarter. Of wow. The like the Dutch. <laughs> yeah. So even the land can be artificial. Right. If you look at... Um, uh, you know, some of these drone shots or large views of Singapore where you look at Marina Bay Sands, uh, yeah. Gardens by the Bay, those things that tourists are familiar with. Did you know that just about 10 over years ago, those structures didn't exist? So I grew up in the Singapore without Marina Bay. Right. <laughs> uh, we came from the sea. Wow. And just to, to go back to your point, so... Um, I think Singapore is quite unique again in this area. Um, I think most people tend to think in terms of binaries, like uh, there's a, on one hand, you have societies that are controlled and you could say more repressive. Then you have societies where individual liberty is celebrated and you can pretty much do anything you like and the government can't do anything about it. Uh, people often like to think of Singapore as on the left, well, I mean, sorry, when I say left, I mean on the controlled side. Socialist, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and while that's not entirely untrue, uh, the binary doesn't quite um, do justice to, mm. to the kind of uh, perspective and worldview that we have. I, I, if I was to use a word, I would say that Singapore is very pragmatic. Singapore yes. is... Uh, perhaps even, I'm not sure if I'm using the term correctly, a real politic, right? Um, yes, it is a society with um, strong laws and tough punishments. Yet, on the other hand, it's a society where um, the government uh, doesn't really stick to a particular ideology, right? It basically mm. looks at what works. And as a Christian, I'm not saying that that is necessarily a good thing, right? Mm. What works uh, as judged is often judged by economic output. Right, what works is often judged um, from a very instrumental basis. Mm. Uh, that has served Singapore uh, on a net basis pretty well for for quite a long time. Yes, right? yes. And so, um, and then to me as a Christian, the negative example would be the casino. So for a very long time, uh, casinos were not allowed in Singapore, all the way until uh, the late two thousands. And uh, in the mid-2000s, there was a debate in Parliament about whether they should allow casinos in. And uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who was still very much active at that point of time, had been opposed to it for a long time on uh, moral reasons. But of course, being Lee Kuan Yew, the moral reasons also translate into um, you know, poor social impact as well as uh, possible uh, impact on the economy, if you have a lot of people addicted to gambling and so on. But uh, the government yeah. then, uh, which was led by his son and still is, um, made a strong case for the economic advantage of having a casino and the fringe benefits of having a resort and other kinds of uh, economic elements uh, around it, which you see nowadays in Marina Bay Sands. Right. And the Christian community, of course, um, uh, made their representations. We, they were not happy about it, but uh, the government decided to move ahead. So mm. you can see that there was a clear change in policy 
And the change was decided not on the basis of moral, morality or anything else, but, but on the basis of the economy. So if you could, if you could uh, say uh, what is the uh, ideology of uh, Singapore and Singapore government, it's actually what works for the economy. And they are right. quite happy to change their policies uh, on that basis. And they're quite happy to also understand that uh, you can't keep the country locked up like, um, well, like what's going on in Myanmar now <laughs> or yeah, in some right. other countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, they know that the internet is not a place where it's practical to have a great firewall like China. Well, I mean, China has managed to do it for a while, but, but Singapore is not that kind of place. Singapore is not like China where you can have a large domestic economy and still draw a very clear line between the outsider and the insider. In Singapore, if you go on, a, if you walk around on the streets, you find that a quarter or, sorry, I think even up to a third of the population of people you see on the streets are not, are not local. Mm. On one hand, you have expats uh, coming in to work in professional jobs. On the other hand, you have a very large uh, population that is uh, working in our construction sector, um, manual labor, as well as domestic workers, um, uh, otherwise called uh, as mates, who, who, who are right. often living workers who um, work in the households. So right. you would see that um, with this kind of climate, the government has also relaxed uh, rules on freedom of speech, uh, I can pretty much say what I want on the internet and nothing will happen to me unless, um, yeah, unless it really uh, takes on a life of its own. Um, the government is also very mindful of the different groups, like the ethnic groups or the religious groups. So there are laws to regulate religious harmony and so on. Yeah. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I learned a lot just getting ready for my presentation at the Fullerton about Singapore mm. and it's you know high levels of trust <clears throat> so all the all the you know rank 34th I think in world happiness <clears throat> at the time and um, and so it, by all by all measures very successful flourishing one of the largest sovereign wealth funds um, mm -hmm. in the world uh, after Norway which also impressed me in public housing sitting in in uh, in a trust in a basically shared trust fund, really remarkable. <clears throat> so Mike, I guess the transition for me is the, um, you know, your kind of life as a, as a Christian. And we, and we yes. talk about this idea, you know, you know, when I, when I was in Singapore, I was interviewed by salt and light and they said, well, how can yeah. love and the economy, you know, be inter interconnected? And I, mm -hmm. I, I argued, well, it's been, I felt, it's been part of my calling for since I went to Jerusalem many, many years ago. Uh, and all my heart was this notion of build a civilization of love, mm. you know, and some would call it. And I remember when uh, Irene, we met, met me or reached out to me. Uh, she was, she's a Singaporean missionary is living in Toronto. She said, your book is kingdom economics. And I said, what, mm. what are you talking about? Cause I'm Catholic. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily use that language. But I understand it from that perspective of, you know, God shows us, you know, this reality of abundance and, and even Christ kind of teaches us uh, about money, but not, not in a, in a clear enough way that says, well, here's, you know, here's a kingdom economic model. 
you know? Mm. And one of the big issues of my study is this relationship we have with money. So one could say that Singapore has been enormously successful with 240 billion US in your sovereign wealth fund, uh, which is more than enough to uh, sustain your what, over 5 million population with, I think your, your, if your numbers are correct, at least a million are, are migrant workers uh, mm. fixing the roads and you know working uh, in households and cleaning and all those things. And they probably have a better life than they would even in Chennai in India or uh, mm. Southern India where they came from. So one could see that there's clearly a, a model for kingdom economics here, at least from my outsider's perspective, that actually is, I think, more vibrant than what I see in, in Canada, which has, a, to me, has always been a model of abundance, right? Um, mm. So I'm just curious how you, how you see the world through a Christian lens. Um, and even the fact that there, there's a strong Christian element in Singapore, uh, and it doesn't mean it's the dominant by any means uh, faith, but it's a significant um, aspect of how, how I think you've been successful um, mm -hmm. because of your kingdom economics kind of perspective. Can you yeah. talk about that as a as a young Christian and yeah, I would say that um, maybe the biggest contributor would be something that is not um, necessarily economic, but uh, the values that are celebrated in Singapore, uh, which were very much linked to what the pioneering generation of political leaders um, uh, kind of role model as well as promoted. So some of these values include um, things like excellence. So mm. in Singapore, we, we celebrate excellence. Uh, of course, in the earlier days, excellence tend to be measured by more static indicators. As a student, it would be examinations. And then as you uh, go into the workforce, there are specific uh, performance indicators to measure how good you are. And Singaporean workers are known to be uh, excellent and efficient. Of course, the, the uh, barometer of excellence should change as we move into more creative uh, mm. fields and the digital economy. But the right. very basis of wanting to do a good job and doing things properly uh, is an important foundation. Uh, beyond excellence, there would be uh, integrity, which is tied closely to a rejection of corruption. Mm. So um, early in, in the uh, term of, of the, the ruling party's government, they started this uh, agency called uh, CPIB, which is the Corrupt Practices Investigation Bureau, uh, which is still around this day. And uh, they are empowered, from what I know, to, in to investigate any kind of corruption anywhere in Singapore. Uh, they can receive a tip-off and um, it, it could even be um, something very minor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to involve millions of dollars. Right, right. And um, I mean, especially, not that corruption doesn't happen anymore, but especially in the earlier days, of course, uh, because they reported directly to the Prime Minister's office, so they had a large a white mandate and the authority to clamp down on corruption. And that's where you start to um, get the population socialized to, uh, to be used to not practicing corruption and 
to believe that the system is fair. Mm. Because you mentioned earlier on trust in government, and that's true. Singaporeans do have a high trust in government compared to most other countries. Yes. And they have a high trust in the system, right? Uh, of course, there's always criticism, but most of us live our lives thinking that the system will work for us. And don't, we don't think the system is rigged, right? And, and, um, and that allows and sets the basis for businesses to have fair competition, for, for foreign uh, companies and investors to come in and not think that they have to pay the local official off uh, and to feel that this is the right hub and the right place to base themselves. Um, because Southeast Asia is, we put it this way, a bit like a wild west, right? And Singapore at least is some form of safe haven where they can um, base themselves and strategize how they can reach the region. So that's excellence that is uh, integrity, which is linked to non-corruptibility. Uh, non and, and, um, and, and there's honor, yeah. and there's honor in the, in the business relationships. Um, that second time I was invited yes. to, your, to your country that it was called Honor Singapore. And I thought, wow, I don't, I can't imagine this kind of conference happening in Canada when you're mm. talking about, you know, whether it's thinking about your grandfather and, and how business was done with trust without contract almost. Mm. And today we, you know, in the U S you have all this litigious society and lawyers and, uh, and you have to sign non-disclosure agreements and, you know, it, it's a culture of distrust. And yet yeah. in Singapore, there's still that culture of trust. And so there's, that is very good for business. Mm. It's, it's more efficient really ultimately. Yeah. I think in Singapore, that honor is very much linked to uh, doing what we say and saying what we do. Uh, I know in many countries, the populations are used to political leaders making election promises. And most of the promises, you don't actually expect them to be fulfilled. In Singapore, I'm not saying that things are perfect, but we actually expect <laughs> when someone says something, especially someone in authority, uh, that they would fulfill what they say. And so we have very high standards. We would judge them as well if they don't actually do that. And sometimes a lot of the complaints actually come uh, from ourselves having very high standards. If you look at the, uh, the train system, uh, our MRT or what you might call the metro, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for many years it was running perfectly. And then around almost 10 years ago, it started to break down. But to put it into perspective, the breakdowns were maybe like uh, once in a couple of months. And when I say breakdown, I mean for, for a few minutes or for yeah, an hour. For, not for a and week. Not on all the lines. <laughs> not all the so, lines. Yeah, we, we, now we have about, I think, four or five lines. Yeah. So when that happened, Singaporeans got very, very upset. Like seriously <laughs> upset. This is headline news. People were very upset on the internet. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the government had to apologize and so on. But, you know, if that happened in, in most other countries, especially Western countries, uh, people just get used to it and yeah. just get on with their life, right? <laughs> so, so we have very high standards because um, the, we, we are used to that. And uh, I, I think that brings out an aspect of honor of doing what we say. 
uh, of course, there is the relational element that you have mentioned. Um, I, I don't think that that is peculiar to Singapore. I think in many Asian societies, we have that. That's true. Uh, that's I, true. I would even say that it might be a bit more actually in some other Asian societies because Singapore has become very uh, professionalized and corporatized. Um, we, uh, we are a place where, where there is trust. But if you go to countries where the system is not so well set up, uh, then of course, relationships matter even more, whether it's in China or in other countries in Southeast Asia. In China, of course, you probably know about this term called Huan Si, right? Mm. Which, which refers to the uh, relationships uh, between people and also, of course, between business people. Yeah, so I think that's the dimension of honor for me. But there's also a bit of a challenge and a warning to younger people in Singapore. Um, it's, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that this kind of uh, mindset and behavior will persist to people who are younger, who are very much, I mean, Singapore is a pretty open society, right? As much as we say we have a, a strong government and some people call soft authoritarian, <laughs> um, and we are actually very open. I mean, I'm speaking to you here on Zoom. I can go to any website I want uh, after this and I can read whatever I like, uh, even if it's very uh, critical things of the government. And, and so we are very much influenced by media and content from all around the world, especially in the West. Mm. I consume um, uh, Netflix um, shows from the West, also shows from Asia as well. Right. So, it's not necessarily the case that young people are influenced by honor. And, and that's one of the concerns and worries I would have actually for Singapore uh, going down the road. Yeah. I mean, for me as a Christian in Singapore, I also see, and, and since you asked, um, I also see that there is a connection between faith and uh, the outcome and success of Singapore. Now, uh, Christianity, both Protestants and uh, Catholics, make up for only 20% of the population. And if you go back 30, 40 years ago, it was even less. Uh, but I would say that uh, it experienced a strong growth, uh, especially in the first 50 years. Um, at the start of independence in 1965, I would say they're probably around um, five to 8% that were Christian in the population. And uh, I mean, there was a, a large growth and explosion over the years. And a lot of this uh, basically affected two kinds of people. One, there were people who were already Christian. Uh, very often, uh, they might have been uh, people who were connected right, to the colonial establishment uh, or people who were maybe uh, grew, who, went, who grew up in missions, what we call mission schools, which Christian yeah. schools. Yeah. Right. And um, these were people who were Christian by heritage and by religion. Um, but, you know, growing up at that time in a post-colonial developmental state where most people are not Christian, I think uh, they struggle to relate their faith to their life. Uh, and um, the Christian revival of the 70s and the 80s, which I wrote about in, in a book which I published with my dad called Unfolding His Story, I, I would say really helped them to connect their faith to their life and to their work. Mm. Uh, so that's one group. And then the second group would be people who, who were not previously Christian, who uh, at that point of time embraced the faith and um, led to you know, 20% of the population today be, become being Christian. 
But what I was saying about the impact on Singapore was a lot of these people went on to be your future leaders in government, in business, in a community. Mm. And uh, in government, whether in terms of uh, politicians or uh, top public or what we call here civil servants, um, they became informed by these Christian values. Now, uh, to be clear, I'm not saying that they tried to Christianize uh, Mm -hmm. the country or impose their religion on the system. But the values that I mentioned earlier, I would say that um, the faith helps to inform the conviction. I mean, to be convicted about values like being excellent, be convicted about values like having integrity, uh, showing honor, uh, and then as you said earlier on, um, loving your neighbor and all the other Christian values um, I mean, many people will agree that these are good values, you know, but in times of pressure, in times of difficulty, it's the conviction, right, that matters if you can hold on to it. And it is uh, the fact that many of these leaders were Christian. They had these convictions. They had a personal experience of God through the Holy Spirit, yeah, through I would, the revival that I mentioned, yeah. uh, which is what made them say, okay, uh, this faith is a living faith. It matters to me. It's something that I wish to um, share with others in my personal capacity. And in terms of values, it gives me meaning in my work. Uh, it's, it is that kind of thing which I would say had an um, intangible impact on the pattern of development for Singapore, uh, which led to the current prosperity. I think that, you know, when I met Irene, uh, she, she introduced me to a term I'd never heard before called boss, a boss Christian. And I mm. think there are many in, in uh, Singapore and also in China that have are having these experiences of literally that Christ, you know, Holy Spirit, mm. uh, in yeah. being ex- having that experience, that mystical experience outside of yeah. structure, outside of even church. Yeah. And and to me, that's fascinating. I mean, I suppose one could imagine meeting Lao Tzu or Kongza and saying, Oh, yeah, I met, you know, I met Kongza and he informed yeah. me that I should, you know, and if you look at China and it's it's good governance is around Confucian kind of ways of thinking. And then there's got these ancient Taoist uh, philosophies. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's been fascinating to see how, you know, the, those two faiths or, or spiritualities actually mm-hmm. in a way are kind of nicely aligned with Christ's teaching. So um, it's, so it's fascinating to me when someone has, one of those mystical experiences outside of the structure. I mean, I was born Catholic, so you could say, well, you know, I, I had it easy. It's like, no, no, it's actually harder in a way to be born into a system and come mm-hmm. to appreciate it's the teachings of values because you can spend your whole life discovering right. what the importance of that. But yeah. I think, wow, what a, what a marvelous thing to have, uh, you know, someone like Philip, Philip in, you know, have yeah. had his experience, I think, with, with the Alpha international experience and coming back to Singapore and, and living his corporate life. Um, I'll never forget the, that night after I had, I think a three hour coffee with your father mm-hmm. and opening up one of uh, the far East organizations, picture books of all the buildings they'd built and his, and his father before him and having love as the core principle of the company. And I said, like, nobody would put love as a core principle of your company, would yeah. you? Like, you don't learn that in business school. So why would this very wealthy man, you know, have love at the core of the Far yeah. East organization? Yeah. 
And it was, and for me, that's the theme of this show is like when he defined love, it, it, it really blew me away because he said love is a concern for the well-being of the other. Yeah. And I experienced that in his hotel. I experienced that from the staff and mm -hmm. I experienced that from his senior management. I thought, well, here's an amazing culture that actually grasps well-being at its kind of mm -hmm. essence, right? And that mm -hmm. to me has been fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do have some comments on that. Um, I, well, I, I think that um, Philip Ng does represent a new breed of, um, I would use the term kingdom-minded uh, business owner or entrepreneur, even here in Singapore. Right. Um, yes, we had honor. Yes, we had all those values that I mentioned before, particularly in the first uh, 50 years. Um, and Singapore is 56 this year. Wow. Um, but... Uh, at, the, at the end, uh, at the same time, um, I think uh, people like Philip Ng have become even more radical in a positive way, where it's going beyond saying, okay, let's have a, uh, let's have good and righteous values um, mm. and have a good uh, business climate. Let's be excellent. Let's not be corruptible, but let's go beyond that to become relational, as you have mentioned. Relational. Right? To, to become loving, right? To our workers, to our partners, and, and uh, to our vendors and so on. And I think that it's not only just for the West, but even for a place like Singapore, I would say that that's also fairly new to us. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're not perfect for sure. And uh, we have to learn that as well. But I think that uh, what is... Uh, putting Singapore in the right position uh, for this kind of innovation. And maybe I would use the term uh, kingdom innovation or in a more secular perspective, I'd use the term, um, well, kind of uh, new economic in innovation or disruptive innovation. Disruptive innovation. <laughs> yeah. Is that um, the old economic models uh, are passe, right? And nowadays, we have digital disruption. You also have uh, a creator economy where you have a lot of young people who can themselves each be their own creators. The, the power to create on social media, on the internet, uh, is so much more than, say, just 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, so the individual person, individual worker is especially with education, can be a lot more empowered than before, than treating them as just a digit, right? As just a cog in the machine. Right, right. And uh, also when it comes to, uh, to technology, you need to start to think of things like ethics. You know, with artificial intelligence, there's like AI ethics, stewardship, governance. And so what I'm trying to say is that with these economic trends and with Singapore's position as a hub, which has been the case for a very long time and hopefully will still remain. Singapore is well positioned to be a place where uh, people can come together from Canada, from Africa, from other parts of Asia, from the US, from Europe, to sit down and say, can we think and invent new models for the economy and new ways to treat people which are uh, just like what you're passionate about, caters to the well-being of people. And Singapore already is taking the lead in this area of AI governance. We uh, have set up certain centers to study that. 
uh, we have submitted, I think, position paper also to World Economic Forum and I think to the United Nations sometime back. So uh, to be a center of ethics and ethical usage of technology. Uh, and if you think about, you know, just like the whole China-US uh, conflict as well, te technological wars, right? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, if you leave aside the politics, right? Um, if you just think about privacy, data privacy, um, and also the relationship between technology and people, and also how to have a healthy usage of technology, especially for kids and young people growing up. And then if you think about, and for me, I actually uh, work in the telecoms industry, so I'm familiar with uh, what's coming with immersive reality, augmented reality, virtual reality. And it's true that uh, a lot of this can start to have very negative health effects on people, especially if they get essentially addicted to technology or addicted to, to a reality that is not real. Mm -hmm. So Singapore can and I would say should be the place for these conversations and for these standards to be discussed, to be set up, to be prototyped, to be tested. And uh, with role models and case studies like Philip Ng with his business uh, kind of leading the way, looking at love, right? As a basis or grace as a basis to run the business. I would say that that would be what's needed for Singapore to actually reinvent itself wow. for the next uh, 50 years. Yeah. So what, I'd like to, your opinion on, uh, there was a fabulous, interesting debate between Elon Musk and Jack Ma from Alibaba mm -hmm. in Shanghai when it was it three years ago or, and which I think Mr. Ma was saying, uh, challenging Elon, why do you why do you want to go to Mars when there's a lot of work still to do he, down here on Earth? And and Jack Ma has proposed um, a, an algorithm. I believe it's IQ plus EQ equals LQ, and okay. uh, LQ being love quotient. And I've been asking some of my Asian friends, uh, what do you think LQ means? Uh, yeah. and, and then I weave that into uh, Philip's uh, love principle, you know, concern for yeah. the well-being of the other. And so I kind of get excited about this possibility that, you know, that the, the competitor Amazon um, in Alibaba could in fact create maybe some type of interesting transactional algorithm where LQ becomes the basis of, of mm -hmm. a kind of flourishing relationships. Um, because economics, I always have to remind my business, is based on the science of scarcity, which is mm -hmm. actually incongruent with a God of love and of abundance. So, yeah. so we got to figure a way and maybe it'll be through these algorithms and technology that we will finally realize um, the truth of happiness is relationships. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, defines a kind of different notion of smart contracts and blockchain and uh, all that language that you're swimming in and your generation. Yeah. Well, Any comments um, on the LQ kind of piece that Jack Ma is talking about? I, um, well, I don't think what Jack Ma is talking about in terms of LQ might be peculiarly Asian, right? I think it's something uh, potentially human, all of us. <laughs> and I think as, as a Christian, I would say that, um, you know, nowadays we have a lot of talk about ESG, right? And yes. how companies 
need to be socially conscious of the environment, of uh, the impact on people, uh, and then and all sort of uh, areas to be taken into account. But um, fundamentally, it's often done from the perspective of, okay, this is, uh, we need to do this because uh, investors are going to assess us on this. We need to do this because outsiders are going to boycott the business if we don't do this. So it's still often a very much punitive uh, or penalty-based kind of system. Right, right. And I, and I understand that. I mean, in, in human nature, that's also quite common. But I think the advantage that we have as uh, Christians and followers of Christ, right? And if we really take it to heart, right? Jesus uh, says that first of all, we are to lay down our life to follow him. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? A big part of that is to love a neighbor, right? And in some cases, even to the point of death, right? Mm -hmm. To be willing to give up your life for, for your neighbor, just as Jesus Christ gave up his life for us. So then that comes from the perspective of very much intrinsic motivations uh, rather than a penalty-based kind of system. Mm. And of course, I'm not sure if everyone can do that. You need to have a deep conviction and you need to have this kind of um, belief, right? That, that God is ultimately sovereign in control to be able to do something like that. Mm. But then you see how it plays out in businesses like Philip Irvins, where... Um, where I'm not sure if you heard of this anecdote before, but one of his, uh, one of his senior employees asked him before, um, you know, Mr. Ng, talk a lot about grace and grace is one of our core values, but how do we operationalize grace? <laughs> you know, because if you are a manager, you want, what is the process, right? What is the SOP? That's right. right. I need to communicate it to a thousand employees, right? Tell me, and I'll just give yeah. them. The give me the grace book. formula. <laughs> yes. What is the grace formula? Formula. <laughs> and and uh and from what I understand, his answer to this uh, senior employee was that if you could operationalize grace, it's not grace anymore. Because <laughs> grace has to come from the heart. Grace is ultimately and intrinsically a relational uh, product, right? It's something that you have to show grace to another human being, right? And I mean, from a Christian perspective, we know that the grace we receive from God is, uh, you know, the acronym, right? God's riches at Christ's expense, right? Something that we don't deserve. Um, so just as extending grace to someone else who may not deserve it, right? It has to be something that comes from the heart between two individuals. It can't be, I receive a letter from the company and say, um, hi, so-and-so, uh, we would like to show you grace <laughs> and uh, here's what we're going to do for you, right? So, so I, I think that's a, a core insight and it's not easy to do no. because if you run a company with thousands of employees, how are you going to, uh, to get your employees to internalize it so much that they understand what it is and they're able to extend grace to each other, to customers and to suppliers um, and understanding that core value and that dynamic of grace is not easy. So I would say I think that would be one of the key differences from the kind of ESG approach that 
maybe taken uh, nowadays and is very much in uh, in fashion. Yeah. That that's an amazing reflection. I and it brings me back to my first night at the Far East at the Novena, I think, hotel, which I thought was funny because Novena would be a in in the Catholic tradition would be a prayer, right? A prayer sequence. And and it's funny that you you're reflecting on grace because I think the angel Gabriel said, you know, hail Mary, you're full of grace. Mm. Uh, and I think the truth is, and I remember the next day being with um, the Far East senior management and, um, and the corporate chaplain, uh, David, uh, David Chan, David Chan. And, and he, you know, it was one of the hardest audiences I've ever encountered uh, because I thought, well, I, I would come in and I would talk about well-being and I just read, you know, in Philip's own handwriting, you know, the love is the core value. And then I uh, didn't realize grace was as well, but I thought it's so interesting, you know, when we're part of these organizations and you just go to work, you're just, you're just an engineer, you're the CFO, you're head of HR, right. And you're, you're just trying to do your job description. Mm. But, but when you're challenged with this notion of something like grace or love, it's like, what, I don't know what to do with that, you know, and it, you know, it makes sense to me that it was difficult in some ways uh, to hear that message of that I was bringing. It's like, what would a corporation based on well-being look like? Mm. You know, what would buildings based on when I met Lynette Leong, right? At gatekeepers yeah. at that fateful afternoon, I thought here, now this is, this is a person that understands what mm. grace means when you're gifted with the ideas of a new building. Right. And you acknowledge that that only came because of grace or, yeah. or inspiration. And mm-hmm. then you try to engineer that building yeah. with all the human beings that maybe don't feel the grace or think that you're crazy because you've got some crazy big idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet there it is, there's grace, which uh, arrives unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And for me, that I was, think there, are, there yeah. are also two things that differentiates this uh, love quotient that you mentioned. Uh, one of it I, I kind of referenced earlier, which is the willingness to take a hit. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm not sure how uh, easy it is for, uh, well, uh, for someone who, 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 who doesn't believe in God to, to agree with this. Because typically when a company wants to do good, whether it's CSR or ESG, um, the, it, it has to be doing good not at exp- not at the expense of the company, right? Um, right, right. It has to be holistic, and 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 I would say that uh, ideally that should be the case most of the time. I'm not trying to to tell companies to go out of business. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is that when when someone is truly convicted that he should do something as an act of love, right, and he has the capacity to do it, I'm not. I'm not saying that if you have an early stage startup and you have uh, zero dollars, <laughs> that you should well, put yourself out of business. We, we know what that's what like, I mean. right? Yeah. <laughs> Being an entrepreneur is not easy. Get a lot yeah. So, but if you feel convicted, you need to do something out of love. And if in this case, it's not necessarily a win-win, mm, then mm-hmm. you should still do it. Because fundamentally, if we are people who act out of our values and not... Uh, ultimately out of the economics of the situation, then we would do what is right because it's the right thing to do. And so I would say we need more people like this 
um, who are wanting to live such a principled kind of life. And I would say that in the long term, when people know you for this and your reputation is built, of course, I'm sure there are business benefits uh, in the long run, but it's, it's a long game. It's not <laughs> something that would, uh, would reap instantaneous uh, benefits. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, but I think that goes very much to the heart of uh, what you're talking about Singapore. I wouldn't say that Singapore is a great example of uh, doing things that come to our uh, that well, S Singapore historically does things for our own benefit, to be frank about it, right? But I mean, uh, what I mentioned just now about doing what we say and saying what we do. So, um, if we are able to show love, this love quotient, and people know us for it, they'll come to um, know that this is the brand of, uh, I mean, if, if for example, I am a businessman. And I do this. This is my brand. Right? Yes, yes. They, and and then there's a very high level of trust mm. because can you believe it? The other partner would actually say, "Hey, Galvin is not just somebody who uh, who does things only for his own benefit, but he's even as radical as to go to do things sometimes for my benefit when it means nothing to him at all." Can you imagine that kind of trust and the kind of business outcomes that that could facilitate? Oh my goodness! It'll last a lifetime. It can. It could, yeah. And and the second second thing which is different also is um, the thing about means and ends. So uh, you might be familiar as an economist uh, that a long time ago, Teng Xiaoping, uh, the Chinese leader, yes. said that it doesn't matter if it's a I think if it's a black or white cat as long as it catches oh, the mice. As long as it catches the mice. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, it was a very different context. Uh, he yeah. was. Um, basically introducing capitalist elements into China. And now, of course, China is a very different China from the 70s. Um, but means and ends, um, for, I think for us as Christians, uh, means and ends, they are both important. Very often, I think in this world, um, many people focus on the ends and forget the means or discount the means, right? I mean, that's why in the startup world, we have this whole idea and stereotype that you know everyone wants to become the next unicorn yeah so you kind of lose your life for a while right for a few years yes uh, what they call grinding or what they call <laughs> hustling right you're 10,000 hours of hustling yeah, yeah 10,000 hours of hustling you sleep four hours a day <laughs> uh, you become a slave driver and so on so but but the end because you want to become a unicorn right so um I would say as, as Christians or maybe in this kingdom economy, the means and the ends are, are both important because we believe in well-being, right? We believe that it's important to do things the right way. So um, that's, that's, I think, uh, and very often when companies do ESG, they look at the ends, but they don't necessarily look at the way that they get there. So mm. I would say that mm. both the means and the ends are important. And... Um, if I was to think also, right, about some examples I've heard from uh, Far East, um, there have been, um, well, let, let me just think through some examples. Well, I have some examples of great, 
I love the long pause. It was like people were probably, what is Galvin doing? You, you, could, you, could, you could cut that, right? <laughs> so, so the only question I have, Galvin, if you watched the, the Queen's Gambit, were you looking yeah. up to the left or to the right? Because the camera might be reversed. I'm looking up to the right. Okay. What does it say about me? Well, <laughs> I think in the Queen's Gambit, they say that she looked up to the left to see the next chess move. So uh, I don't know what it means when you look up to the right. Yeah. You're, you're looking yeah. for an example of the Far East organization. Yeah, I, I just wanted to share one or two examples. Um, I think one was um, when, you know, they, they build property projects, right? Yes. And uh, the people who buy it for just to live in as residences. And sometimes um, they might receive some complaints. And not all of these complaints are reasonable, right? Sometimes some people hear that, hey, they are a Christian company, they believe yeah, in grace. We can so complain. We can, uh, they're we can full of grace, right? <laughs> you should be gracious, right? You should give me more. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but from what I understand, uh, sometimes you can basically just dismiss some of these uh, complaints or queries as being completely unreasonable. Mm. But uh, even if you were to dismiss them, um, I think they do put in the effort to actually uh, try to listen and to hear what it is. And in some cases, even if it's not warranted, to show grace and to see what can be done um, for the customer that has uh, written in about whatever issue it is. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, a lot of the migrant and foreign labor that comes in to do a lot of hard work. From what I understand also, there is, um, uh, there is an effort, right, to celebrate the end of the construction projects with them. Whereas previously, the celebration would have been with the senior managers and with the uh, contractors. Ah, that's right, right. Yeah. That's fasting. Mm -hmm. So Galvin, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. I often, um, I think it's, um, I'd like to ask you, I, I guess, as a closing question, um, what, you know, for the next uh, 50 years, um, which you'll be part of, what gives you hope for not just Singapore, for Asia uh, in, in, the, in a world which is seeing, I think, a transition of uh, empires, of civilizations, maybe, or maybe just the sustaining one of the oldest sustained civilizations in China. But as a Singaporean, um, what gives you a sense of hope in the next few years ahead? And you're getting married soon, and which is very yeah. exciting, starting a new new chapter in your adult life. Yeah. Well, um, well, as a Singaporean, I would say that. I don't think it's about the West or about Asia and, and who is going to take the lead. I mean, of course, we have heard about the Asian century, um, but I don't think it's, for Singapore, I don't think it's in our interest to, uh, to celebrate the downfall of the West <laughs> or the rise of China and so on. Um, I think Singapore has, for a long time, tried to be a bit of a Switzerland. And mm, in the 90s, mm. um, we had a prime minister, uh, Go Chok Tong, who, whose, uh, I think his election um, slogan was that Singapore should be a, 
uh, Switzerland and should achieve a Swiss standard of living. I mean, this was 20, 30 years mm, ago. Right, right. And Switzerland, as you know, uh, has and still is a neutral country. It didn't fight in uh, yeah. world wars. And uh, it's also a bit of a safe haven in some ways. So I would say the next 50 years for Singapore is to continue on the things that do not change in terms of being a hub for the world mm-hmm. and being a place where, which is open enough to invite everyone to sit at the table, have the exchange, and pioneer and prototype new ideas and technologies here. Mm. But what is different, I guess, uh, for the next 50 years is that we need to fundamentally uh, change the economy and the mindset beyond just productivity and efficiency towards being able to create, um, I would say, local brands and local Local. ideas. I think global, I mean global and local. Yeah. 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 I mean... Um, Singapore has been good at uh, imitating. Uh, Singapore has been good, as I said, uh, at efficiency. But to truly take the next step, um, we need to have that creativity, right? And we need to have that disruptive potential. And even though we invite people from overseas to come and bring that here, uh, we need to have it ourselves in our own DNA, right? uh, the local population. And um, so I think that needs to change. And I think one of the key ingredients that could help it to change because of our discussion today is what you say, the love quotient. Because there are many creative places and economies in the world. Uh, And uh, Singapore wouldn't be an exception. Mm. But could we be the place where we pioneer on top of all of the creativity, on top of all of the technology, the love quotient? And I think... One important way for that to happen is if, of course, uh, we have a new revival of the Holy Spirit in Singapore. And I think many of my uh, counterparts in, in, uh, uh, who believe in, in God uh, are expecting that to happen. Mm. And just as, you know, how Korea is kind of the uh, entertainment leader in Asia right now yeah. with yeah. K-pop and Korean dramas. Uh, I'm not sure if you know that that was actually part of prophecy uh, really? I think about 20 years ago. Wow, K pop was prophesied? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Because, I mean, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, I don't think you would imagine that Korea could, would be a, uh, I mean, no maybe way. a leader in technology and manufacturing with Samsung and so on, but not really a leader in entertainment and media. With no his entertainment way. even going to the West. Yeah. So, for what I understand, uh, there, were, there was prophecy about it, and some of the early leaders, I mean, nowadays, of course, it's very mainstream, but some of the early leaders in the scene back then were Christian. Yeah. And so, and and there have been similar prophecies about Singapore. I mean, Singapore, of course, is already very prosperous, but in terms of entertainment and media, Singapore is seen as a pretty boring place. Right? (laughs) There have been prophecies about about this sector as well, uh, blooming and prospering in Singapore. I'm not sure... uh, uh, of course, uh, it would be nice for me to see that happening in the next 10 or 20 years. And maybe in, in a few years' time, we can look back on this podcast and say, hey, that actually happened. It, it started it on this podcast. It wasn't just human ingenuity, right? It was a work of God. Yeah. Well, Galvin, this has been fantastic. I mean, I think you've given us two key words or ideas to think about is implementing or 
practicing grace, experiencing grace, and this mythical love LQ love quotient, and maybe be part of a new Singaporean K-pop uh, equivalent that won our hearts in the West for uh, the Koreans. I, I was there last last year with, uh, or two years ago with uh, Mayor Park, and uh, I was really amazed by Korea. And I know their long kind of Christian story too, which is mm -hmm. fascinating. So yeah. thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Ma. Thank you.